0: You know what it is. It's a deal, man. I'll have to get small. Um, It's a wild, wild drug. Very dangerous for kids, though, because they they get really small. I knew I shouldn't get small when I'm driving, but... uh, I was driving around the other day, and a cop pulls me over. And he goes, hey... Are you small? (laughs) I said, no, I'm tall, I'm tall. He said, well, I'm gonna have to measure you. (laughs) Got a little test they gave you, it's a balloon. If you can get inside of it. They know you're small. (laughs) They can't put you in a regular cell either, you walk right out. (laughs) One night I got really small and uh, got inside a vacuum cleaner. And the drug wore off. <laughs> I retained the shape of a vacuum cleaner for about two weeks. Wild. To get small.
1: It on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information about the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend. Subscribe. Give us a favorable review. This week, we are kicking off January with a slate of some excellent movies, all based around the subject of shrinking. It's a little theme we call "Let's Get Small." And to get that ball rolling, we're going to be digging into Ernest B. Schoedsack's classic 1940 sci-fi film, *Doctor Cyclops*. Join us. This week's film was one that I caught on good old WPWR-TV, showing back when I was, man, I think six? I, I mean, it makes me miss programming that we would get off of local UHF stations back in the day. It wasn't Halloween, I remember that, but on some random Saturday, some savvy programmer decided it would be a really good idea to do a marathon of films that were dealing with the concept of size. And of course, applying that to horror and sci-fi films, I got to catch the bulk of this week's movie, Dr. Cyclops. That is, until a commercial for the next feature came on, you know, as a teaser. That happened to be Todd Browning's 1936 classic, The Devil Doll which stars Lionel Barrymore, Maureen Sullivan, and Frank Lawton. Uh, Trust me, the movie is a trip, let me tell you. Lionel Barrymore, he's this man that's wrongly convicted of robbing a bank, he escapes from prison, then he gets his hands on this shrinking technology to shrink some companions who he pretends are these little dolls, and they act as his pint-sized lethal enforcers to infiltrate the homes of the people who framed him and exact revenge for him. Oh, Oh yeah, and for a portion of the film, Barrymore disguises himself in drag, taking on this old woman persona. So this already semi-terrifying old man is now an absolutely terrifying old woman, who also has these knife-wielding dolls that attack people on her behalf. That is like straight nightmare fuel for a six-year-old. So seriously though, it's fun, catch it if you can. Anyway, back in the day, I did not. It wasn't for a lack of trying, either. No, my viewing was cut short by my mother coming down to do laundry and objecting when she walked in on the tail end of the commercial for the Devil Doll, and that caused her to pause. And then, of course, with my luck, she stood for another few seconds and got to pick up just the point in the plot where Dr. Cyclops was, um, well, chasing some of his miniature victims with a shotgun. Damn, I almost got away with it, too. Eventually, I would complete my viewing of Dr. Cyclops when I was older, catching it in junior high on a Halloween marathon one year on AMC at random. You know, just enjoying a hot mess of a film that runs along like a freight train and makes far too little sense. But that's just the film itself. I really didn't get into learning about the film's lead actor until I was well into my time as an undergrad in college, catching up on a bunch of films that I either hadn't seen or on stuff that I had started to read about. And that's where I discovered the strange and mysterious tragedy that surrounded Mr. Albert Decker. Oh, you're not familiar with him. Well, honestly, he's a character actor that was getting tons of work for almost 40 years, both on stage, big screen, and even on TV. He was a character actor who was always working, and who would probably be easily recognized once his face flashed in front of yours. But if we're going to talk Decker and Cyclops and his bizarre and gruesome end, I suppose we should start from the start. He was born Thomas Albert Eck Van Decker in Brooklyn, New York City, to Thomas and Grace Eck Van Decker on December 20, 1905. He was a decent student. In high school, he gravitated to appearing in several stage productions. He went on to attend Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, where he had initially planned on studying medicine. But, He was just too good, and he was convinced by his friends that he should go on and pursue a career in theater instead of going on and studying medicine. He graduated from Bowdoin in the spring of 1927, and at the age of 22, he started to work first with an Ohio stock company, and that just was in the summer. By that fall, he had made the rounds and found himself being cast for a Broadway production of Eugene O'Neill's comedy play, Marco Millions. It's not a bad play. It's loosely based on Marco Polo's exploits in the East, and Decker got to play several roles in that actual production. He was a monk, he was a Mongolian emissary, and he was an army captain. He would spend the next decade becoming a very successful and well-regarded theater actor, eventually meeting and marrying his wife, Esther Greeney, in 1929, and then the couple relocated back to New York, where he could be around to perform in such plays like Volpone, Troika, Sisters of the Chorus, Grand Hotel, Nappi, and Squaring the Circle. The Deckers would go on to have three children, two sons, John and Benjamin, as well as a daughter, Jan. He was eventually scouted and then he made that transfer to Hollywood in 1937, appearing first in James Whale direct, or I'm sorry appearing in the James Whale directed comedy The Great Garrick, earning positive reviews and establishing himself as a heavy He would often take roles of thugs, rough customers, drunks, police, military men, but occasionally he would get to rise above being typecasted and take a turn to play a different role, like when he got to be Louis the 18th, again for James Whale, in the 1939 adaptation of The Man in the Iron Mask. Decker was an up-and-coming actor, and in the right place at the right time, he was scouted to play the titular villain in a new form of science fiction horror film that was being cooked up by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Scheutzack. They were dreaming up the next project that could be the new King Kong. Now, I've talked about both Cooper and Scheutzack on this show, back when we covered King Kong vs. Godzilla, and this week's film was made during that stretch that Cooper was himself looking for that another big-ticket hit. That's not to say that he didn't have any luck during this time as a producer in the 1930s, but he was really looking for that big-budget project that could get him the same kind of return on his investment, something that would be groundbreaking, you know, for the day a blockbuster, partnering again with director Schweitzek, who, if you recall on Kong, Schweitzak shot all the human scenes, whereas Cooper focused on being in charge of all the stop-motion animation. So he figured they could recapture some of that magic that they had found before in a little treatment by writer Tom Kilpatrick, one that focuses on a murderous mad scientist who's doing experiments on shrinking animals and people. All, of course, by harnessing the power of radioactive elements. In addition to being loaded with camera tricks that were designed to wow audiences, the plan was to release the first big-studio science fiction film, in glorious Technicolor, which at the time was still very cost-prohibitive for studios, thus it was only used on films that were thought to be, you know, big studio offerings. Paramount was just crazy enough to try to take them on and do this costly endeavor, and so the production for Dr. Cyclops would begin on June 12, 1939, with the jungles of Peru being completely filmed in a studio soundstage at Paramount, and the village scenes being staged at the Paramount Ranch in Agoura, California. Deckard, as we had already discussed, was cast as the titular villain, but character and stage actor Charles Halton was cast as the prickly biologist Dr. Bullfinch, playing to his strength as being obtuse character. Unknown actor in the day, Thomas Coley, was given his first big-screen break, playing the louche yet ultimately brave mineralogist Bill Stockton. A young starlet who was under paramount contract, Janice Logan, was cast as biologist Dr. Mary Robinson. Victor Killian, who was a well-established character actor in his own right during the 1930s, he was cast as the conniving minor Steve Baker. And rounding out the main cast, Bostonian actor Frank Iaconelli was cast as Pedro, Dr. Cyclops's local errand boy, continuing, for the time, the very rich Hollywood tradition of casting Jewish and Italian actors to play other roles that would be deemed ethnic. Now, something you also need to understand, When one was shooting in color those days, all of the blocking and the lighting had to be mapped out in advance to get the three-layer color process to properly overlay with the film, you know, so you can actually match what you're seeing on the screen, in terms of shadow and light, and that made for some painstaking pre-planning when it came to filming. I, I mean, we would probably consider it no big deal now. We're basically talking about using storyboards, but... Think of it, for the day, imagine how complicated that process is gonna be when you know you have to factor in a bunch of trick camera shots, you know, forced perspective, and then you're also having to take into account that you're building sets that are intentionally having oversized furniture and oversized props to make all of your actors look tiny. Making it even more difficult, you're also working with animals, both those that are, quote, miniaturized, and those that have to be wrangled. You know, regular-sized creatures would seem to be monstrously sized, to, especially to human beings who were now shrunk down to a foot tall, but you're having a plan, how are you going to block the movement of a cat, a dog, or even a rather hungry alligator, substituting in for a caiman? In short, Choisek had his work cut out for him. I'll say this, folks, I think I've waxed on a good amount of time here. How about I stop my gabbing and we get to that trailer? What do you say?
2: comes as huge as a prehistoric monster a rifle as unwieldy as a siege gun a terrifying black cat whose jaws mean death a dog looms larger than an elephant death in the hands of a ruthless monster what are you going to do as you and your fellows develop toward normal size you will again interfere with my work and that is something which I cannot permit
1: just Dr. Thorkel, as played by Albert Decker, has been successful at using mined uranium to, as he puts it, tear an object to shreds, shrinking it down to an impossibly small size. His colleague and former pupil, Dr. Mendoza, as played by Paul Fix, begs him to stop, destroy his work, his notes, his results, in what we can only call an exposition dump. You must stop at once.
2: Destroy your slides. Burn your notes. Are you ill? You must listen to me before it is too late. When I discovered this gigantic radium deposit, I thought first of you, of Dr. Thorkel, my teacher, of Dr. Thorkel, the great biologist. I sent for you to counsel me. I began to imagine here in the jungle, the Thorkel Institute, a palace of healing to which all might come. Ah. Are we then country doctors? You do not realize what we have here. In our very hands, we have the cosmic force of creation itself. In our very hands, we can shape life, take it apart, put it together again, mold it like putty. But what you are doing is mad. It is diabolic. You're tampering with powers reserved to God. That is good. (laughs) That is very good. That is just what I am doing. Well, I will not permit it. Are you forgetting who is master and who is pupil? No, and therefore I beg you to renounce this great evil. You would interfere with my work. I must. All this is mine, and I forbid it. You forbid.
1: Naturally, Thorkel does the calm and rational thing, killing his friend and pupil, pinning him between a bunch of tubes, and zapping him in the head with a blast of atomic energy. We then cut to the very real, very prestigious North American Research Foundation, where Professor Kendall, as played by Frank Riker, informs his best scientist, biologist, Dr. Rupert Bullfinch, as played by Charles Halton, and Dr. Mary Robinson, as played by Janice Logan, that he's just gotten word from the long-lost Dr. Thorkel from the Peruvian jungles, where he's been engaged with some secret microscopic work. He, of course, has requested some help to come down and join him. And, of course, Professor Kendall thought the two doctors would be just the ones to send. Bullfinch grumbles about the secretive nature of traveling so far, but the two end up setting off on a journey of 10,000 miles just to get to Lima. It's there that they meet up with a surly mineralogist an expatriate American, Bill Stockton, as played by Thomas Colby to see if he would like to
2: join them. But Mr. Stockton, we have already come 10,000 miles. Please make an effort to grasp our situation. Oh, I can grasp it without any effort. Your Dr. Hardy couldn't stand this altitude, and I'm the only other mineralogist this side of Lima. The answer is still no.
0: We were warned that any of the usual ways of offering
2: you work would fail. Who did me that favor. We naturally went to the consul. What'd he say? As American consul, he merely admitted you were on an extended vacation. But as your friend, he now admits he has only been doing you harm in buying up your IOUs. You pick up things quick, don't you? So now, Mr. Stockton, which would you rather do? Go to jail or go to work?
1: Stockton is essentially blackmailed by the expedition. They now hold his debts. They're also forced to take on a fourth companion when they learn that the mule team that they rented has been bought up by a local miner, a man named Steve Baker, as played by Victor Killian. He suspects that his animals are going to be used to haul treasure, so in exchange for the rental, he demands that he gets to go with his mule team, thinking of course that this Dr. Thorkell is really sitting on a bunch of wealth in the middle of the jungle versus scientific research. After an arduous journey, they end up getting to Thorkel's camp, where they're greeted by a local Peruvian handyman, Pedro Caroz, as played by Frank Iaconelli, and of course his friendly dog, Tipo. Pedro does a bunch of odd jobs, and he helps Thorkel now and again, but in reality, he's been concerned as of late that he can't find his horse, Pinto, and he asks the rest of the party if they've seen the animal, very disappointed to learn that they haven't on their entire trip in. Thorkel then arrives and he introduces himself, and he meets everyone in attendance, and while he's a little stilted and weird, he's at least complimentary and, at first, friendly with the guests, requesting that they get to work immediately, telling them that the reason they've been summoned here is to help him conduct his very important, very secretive research, as his own eyesight is starting to fade, and he's having a lot of trouble looking at the results through his microscope. At first, Robinson, Bullfinch, and to a lesser extent, Stockton, are happy to oblige. But after they view a few slides, what basically amounts to being about five minutes worth of work, Thorkell is happy with the answers, and he got them confirmed, and horrifies the entire group when he tells them,
2: Thanks, that's all I needed. You're free to go. Oh, forgive me if I seem overwrought, but what you have just told me, proves the theory on which my work has been based for the past two years. And your eyes, young man, have given me the clue to my only error. These eyes, what a handicap. How they've held me back these many months. And what a journey they've caused you, my friends.
0: No, Dr. Thorkel, what a privilege.
2: Now you must pardon my returning to my work. I have some processes underway which require my constant attention. I shall hope tomorrow morning to find a moment to bid you all farewell. If not, please accept now every expression of my esteem and gratitude. Goodbye. Are you attempting to intimate that you summoned me, Dr. Rupert Bullfinch, 10,000 miles just for this? I am not intimating, Dr. Bullfinch. I'm merely stating a fact. At a very critical period in my work, You were able to give me the benefit of your trained sight. I do not, however, require further assistance. Now you must permit me to return to my work. It is most absorbing. Goodbye.
1: Bullfinch is apoplectic, but the group ends up making camp for the evening at the makeshift barracks of Thorkell's compound. Baker goes out snooping, and he finds a deep mine that Thorkell has some sort of device suspended over the mouth of. And he notes there's a weird green light, both coming from the laboratory and from the mine shaft itself. He does manage to sample a bit of the loot, some rocks, and some things he finds around the mouth of the mine, and he brings them back to show to the other scientists, telling them that he knew there was a mine, and of course there were some riches here. Thorkel, for his part, has been hard at work interacting with Pedro's horse that he stole and, of course, shrunk down to the size of a house cat, lying to the man's face, telling him, Your animal wandered off. In the morning, Thorkel finds out that his guests have been snooping, especially when he learns that Bullfinch is ecstatic. He thinks he's found some bones of what he thinks is a new species of some sort of micro-pig, one that's only four inches long. And Thorkel mocks the man for trying to take credit for things he couldn't possibly understand. Thorkel first attempts to give them all the bums' rush, making some not-so-subtle threats, but Bullfetch, of course, refuses to leave. The entire party end up walking into the lab, disrupting all of the good doctor's plans, forcing him to share some information with them, after initially becoming angry and hostile. Thorkel has been harnessing the power to generate, at least from the radium he has mined, and direct this energy into what he calls a condenser. And he shows this group the chamber where he keeps all of this fancy machinery. He then makes sure that all of them are in attendance and are far enough into the chamber before he can quietly back out and lock them in, throwing the switches and blasting his guests with some very concentrated beams all over their protests and screams. Thorkel then gathers up all of their things, shoes his black cat... Satanus, great name, away, noting that the feline will have plenty of time to have fun soon enough. The group awakens in a basement cellar, shocked to discover that they are now all under a foot tall. Thorkell comes down and purposely toys with them, forcing them to climb up the stairs in a panic and observing them in a very off-putting, mad scientist way.
2: See, I am sitting down. I threaten nothing. Come on out where I can see. i like to look at you. How fearful you are. You've changed in more than size. Have you forgotten breaking in to steal my discoveries? Have you so soon lost all your interest? Where is your scientific spirit? No fear. What is the matter? Can you not speak? Yes, I can speak. And a fine natural voice too. But come, are you not curious? Have you no questions to ask? Only one. Why does providence permit the existence of such a monstrosity? (laughs) marvelous exactly in character brain and nervous system have come through undamaged now my little friends it will be necessary to again check your various weights and sizes (sighs) but first you will forgive me if i am so rude as to resort to a stimulant Uh, excuse me, but during the period of your transition, I have not had one hour, not one moment's sleep. Thorkel goes to take
1: a nap, and the group does attempt to escape, exiting the door by way of stacking books up so they can reach the latch, and now having to contend with monstrously sized chickens that are out in the compound's yard. As they make their way, they find themselves being stalked by Satanus, and they attempt to hide from the feline in a prickly pear bush for safety, saved only when Tipo arrives and chases the cat off. The group begins to fashion bits of rope from string, and starts to make weapons from objects that they find, like scissor blades and sewing needles, anything that can help keep them safe. Thorkel awakes after a few hours and discovers that his guests have escaped to the yard. Bulfinch tells the others to remain hidden and try to avoid the scientist, while he willingly goes forth to try to negotiate and reason with the mad doctor, comparing him to being a rather ignorant fellow, just like the Cyclops of Greek mythology. Thorkel tires of the discussion and rushes out to forcibly capture the biologist and brings him into the lab for examination. After measuring his, well, so-called specimen and taking his vitals, Thorkel is disappointed to find that Bullfinch is again growing, slowly, returning back to his original size. Learning that the effects of his rays are only temporary, Thorkel tries to coax Bullfinch to do his bidding, and while the biologist does manage to jab the larger scientist's hand with a fountain pen, Thorkell has decided that there's only one way to stop his guests from ruining his plans, and while the others watch in horror from hiding, they see Dr. Thorkell suffocate Dr. Bullfinch with an alcohol-soaked cotton ball. Mary screams, alert Thorkell to their presence, and he again gives chase to the diminutive group, arming himself first with a butterfly net, and then, in a fit of rage, he attempts to strike at them with a spade only to find that the group has escaped the compound through a hole in the wall, attempting to survive the night out in the jungle. The group is forced to make their way through a tropical rainstorm, hiding from wild animals and seeking shelter, spending the night in a rocky outcrop next to the river. In the morning, they find that they're actually near Pedro's canoe, but now it's a massive vessel compared to their small size. As the men struggle to try to get it into the water, their activities draw the attention of a passing caiman swimming in the river, who attacks the group, but they do manage to hold it off eventually with some fire. They resume their work on the canoe, but Thorkel continues his hunt for them, using Tipo to help track his former master Pedro, showing up now, though, with a shotgun. Fearing they will be found, Pedro insists that the others run and hide in the tall grass while he lures Thorkel away from their location, eventually being killed by a shotgun blast when Tipo catches up to him at the rocks. The survivors continue to hide, moving to a specimen case that ends up being carried back by the unsuspecting mad scientist. He in turn sets fire to the grass at the riverside and assumes that he has killed all of his quarry.
2: Now's our chance.
0: Hurry, Bill, before he gets back.
2: What's the matter with you? Dr. Bullfinch and Pedro stopped running, didn't they? Well, here's where I stop. What are you going to do? I don't know yet, but I'm staying here. I'm going to kill him somehow. Anyway, I'm through running. Take care of her, Steve.
0: You can do that yourself, Bill. I'm staying with you.
2: You don't suppose I'm going to wander away alone, do you? At my size?
1: The group returns to the lab and plans to kill their giant captor with his own gun, subtly pointing it towards his bed, intent on setting it off when he sleeps. But the doctor ends up falling asleep reviewing his work at his table, spoiling their chance. Needing an edge, Baker recalls all of the pairs of eyeglasses that Thorkel has in his bureau, and the group systematically take and smash every pair they find. They almost get the glasses that Thorkel has on his person, but he wakes up after they manage to only destroy one of the lenses, now truly becoming a Cyclops. As Thorkel fumes, he begins to toss his entire lab. The trio do manage to escape back out into the yard and make their way across the edge of the mine, going to the outcrop beyond Thorkell's reach. As a half-blind man attempts to give chase, he misses stepping on the board that he placed across the mouth of the mine, and he finds himself suddenly precariously hanging by the same rope that is holding his precious condenser. Seizing on the opportunity, Bill takes his half-of-a-scissor-blade sword, and he ends up cutting the rope, Dropping Cyclops to his death Months end up Passing, and now the trio Are all back to their original sizes And they've returned to civilization In Lima Baker waxes on about how he's Frustrated he can't tell anybody what happened Down there, but he at least intimates That they've indeed claimed some of those Riches from the mine, and he rolls His eyes at the fact that Bill and Mary are now a couple in love Credits Roll Good lord, where do we even begin? Well, for myself, I love this kind of film. I I just, in general, love this era of sci-fi horror, the kind of films that started in the 40s and would just keep ramping up in the 50s and 60s with the advent of the Cold War and the space race really shaping those stories. It's here you get great characters like Bullfinch, you know, that marvelous trope of the indignant scientist who's both villain and victim of his own knowledge. Our own weird, baked-in, American-branded, proud ignorance shines through here, pointing out that while Bullfinch may himself be brilliant, unlike the roughneck miner Steve, he doesn't know when to shut up and stop talking, which of course dooms himself and his companions to be victims of another equally powerful member of the scientific community who is amoral and is truly evil, which then of course leads us to Decker. He's perfect here as a villain. He's clearly a prototype of what we would see aped over and over again in the 60s with Hanna-Barbera's Johnny Quest, you know, the perfect mad scientist villain. Although he's still curt and, to the point, a white guy. And he's not speaking with some horrible racist accent the way the cartoons would go on to make their evil scientists. Deckard is the perfect level of intense, because he's cold and he's calculating as Thorkel. The man who's so wrapped up in his work that he thinks nothing of essentially asking these three strangers to come halfway across the world just to confirm they can see the same thing he's seeing, and then after five minutes tells him, great, take a hike. People are literally just there for him, and that's fine. He's cool with ignoring all social niceties and all trappings of civilization as long as it lets him continue to do his job. And he doesn't really care, as long as you don't get in his way. But if you do, you're just another problem he has to solve, and that's just to get back to his shrinking. So on one hand, Decker plays him as this semi-comical, at least until he starts killing. And even when he kills Mendoza, at least at first, it's very silly. You can sort of write it off. But later, when Deckard is clearly... Going full mad scientist, when he's towering over his victims, he really gives a menacing chill. Cause he's so calm and so calculating, methodically measuring and then disposing of Dr. Bullfinch, snuffing him out with a wad of alcohol-soaked cotton, as if Bullfinch were some sort of butterfly or frog that was about to be dissected. That's when the true horror of this film really kicks in, and to his credit, it's a hundred percent all Decker just conveying that indifference.
2: What are you going to do? As you and your fellows develop toward normal size, you will again interfere with my work. And that is something which I cannot permit. you
0: would spy
1: on me. And what of Dr. Mary Robinson? How awesome is it that in 1939, when this was filmed, you have a woman scientist who gets to go on an adventure into the dark jungles of Peru and show knowledge and expertise. All, of course, in spite of her clear gender handicap. Now, I'm clearly being facetious and for her part Janice Logan does the best she can do with what this script actually offers for her character to say but it's interesting she is shown to be the very serious one here she does come off a little bit like a nag but she's the one who tells the men get it together do your job and let's try to think our way out of this mess she becomes the de facto leader post bullfinch's death it's Mary who distracts the cayman and who purposely puts herself in harm's way to allow the other men to grab more firewood to hold it off. Does it have to follow the standard formula of her magically falling in love with the lazy shrinking guy? Well, yeah, he only gets motivated because he thinks he's going to get eaten by a house cat or a large reptile, but... What are you going to do? This was still made at the end of the 30s. You couldn't just have a man and a woman go through some harrowing situation and not come out the other end in love. You know, ready to marry. Even if there isn't any chemistry there, or logic for that matter. But again, it was a different time. Still, the point remains, after Decker, Logan is probably the strongest performance, and the one I think I enjoy most when I look back on it. There is a problem here, though. Pedro. Yeah, let's skip over the blatant modern critique of portraying someone of a different ethnicity, but let's get to the part where he's really done dirty here. Post-shrinking, all of the quote white folks are allowed to have some level of dignity here. They're allowed to sport some very interestingly tailored togas, whereas Pedro wakes up with the group and he's sporting what I can only really describe as a giant red diaper. Who thought that was a great idea? Why is that needed at all? How could actor Frank Iaconelli not raise a hand on set and put forth, uh, look, I, I know I play the local Peruvian guy, but um, before you shrunk me, I had on pants and a button-down shirt, and now you have me looking like Baby Huey while the rest of the cast looks like a bunch of Greek philosophers. This ain't right. It sort of makes you wonder about the motivations of Kilpatrick when he was, <laughs> and I'll be kind, writing this script. And here, let's dig into it a little further. In movies where the motif revolves around shrinking, especially in the ones we're going to cover here this month, usually there's a logical thread, a reason to think that it's being done. You know, help controlling resources, medical breakthroughs, espionage, that sort of thing. The Cyclops is shrinking people because... Just get out of my goddamn jungle lab. That's why. I mean, yeah, he talks about he likes to play God and all the power he has, but there's no real mention as to why he's doing it. His protégé has ideas, but Cyclops isn't really interested in that. And I think part of that stems from production itself. You have a very technically advanced film for the time that it was made. Clearly, the studio spared no expense when it came to financing the special effects for the production. The problem is the entire time that Cooper and Scheutstack and Paramount were all sitting around talking about how they were going to do this, how they were going to show the characters on the big screen shrinking, they should have paused and said, well, maybe we should talk about why they're shrinking. Ryder Kilpatrick's script is awfully skimpy on the plot, and even on the basic motivations for characters, both good and bad, they're emaciated here at best. Now. Again, I love the fact that it turns into unintentional comedy that way, but to me, this film is classic because it's so strange. But seriously, there was a lot of good money spent here, and a lot of hard work went into this. It's almost if they had just taken an afternoon or two to tighten up some of the plot points and maybe flesh out some of the dialogue to make it a little, well, more believable. And you could have arguably had a film that would have been what they were hoping for. In reality, the next big hit that could have rivaled something like King Kong. Seriously, you're already making all these direct allusions to, you know, Polyphemus from Homer's The Odyssey. You have a chance to make this even more horrifying, and you can class it up with a bunch of Western literature references to boot, all while being cutting edge. But, you know, opportunities. Sometimes you miss them. so I can hear you out there now. Chris, how was this film received? Well, here, to their credit, Paramount rolled out the carpet on a number of unique publicity stunts to promote this movie. Example, for its big launch in Kansas City, A full-on atomic chamber was constructed in one local theater, and that allowed movie patrons who entered the lobby to look through a viewfinder and the chance to, of course, ogle a lady model that was decked out in a very becoming sarong, who, of course, stood next to a gigantically large fake ruler. The lens in the finder was, of course, reversed to make the model appear to be only six inches tall, and that garnered so much excitement that another version of the chamber was made to face the street as well, which would entice folks to come in and, of course, see the film. Not come in to see the lady, oh no. In Denver, the lobby of a selected theater was outfitted with oversized furniture to make the film's patrons seem very, very small, make them feel like they themselves were shrinking. Newspaper contests were held in key cities, whispering campaigns were started in places like Hartford, Altoona, and Providence. This film was also a very early attempt for the film industry to attempt to cash in on the popularity of pulp novels and their readers. In modern times, we're pretty much used to the concept of having a movie come out and have the novelization be there immediately when the film is released, but at this time, that was pretty cutting edge when it came to marketing. Paramount partnered with Thrilling Wonder Stories and published an adaptation of the screenplay for Dr. Cyclops, written by the then-popular pulp author Henry Cutter. To sweeten the deal, Thrilling Wonder Stories commissioned a cover painting for the novelization by illustrator Howard V. Brown that would end up being used for the theater campaign Publicity Stills, instructing audiences to read it now and then go see it at your local theater. Now, in spite of all of this, Dr. Cyclops was not the colossal moneymaker that you may have expected, nor were critics pleased. Variety was very quick to mock the film, calling it a fantastic melodrama that can generate only minor audience interest. I do find that review to be particularly interesting, because in a way, the staff reviewer At least how they write it, they seem to convey some general disappointment that real humans were not actually shrunk down to be placed on camera, noting that the film is just achieved through use of continual process and trick photography. The idea just gets lost in the jumble and it pancakes off of a dull effort. How bizarre. Now, the New York Times, they didn't pull their punches with their review either, but I'll give credit. Reviewer B.R. Crisler was able to sort of presciently tap into what we would now consider a film's, well, let's call it camp value. Or at least, as we like to think of it here, you learn to love that which is so bad, it becomes good again. Noting that, as a cinematic spectacle, Dr. Cyclops is the best bad picture of the year. An epic of silliness, and more than that, a triumph of the process screen and department trick effects all combined very tastefully, and what manner of taste is almost uniformly bad without Technicolor? In its particular way, it is a monument to the ever-expanding universe of cinema, where occasionally anything goes, including flagrant violations of the basic physics and chemical laws it's a pleasure to concede that Paramount has reared back and passed a minor miracle, a picture which is frankly terrible and at the same time is one of the most amusing of the season. The film was something to behold, though, and the following year, in 1941, at the Academy Awards, the film itself was nominated for the Best Special Effects category. Now, it would ultimately lose out to the equally impressive Thief of Baghdad, but that loss and a tepid response that somewhat doomed the film into obscurity, at least initially. Director Scheutzack was physically on his own downward spiral at the time. Ironically, he ended up losing his eyesight primarily to injuries he sustained during World War II, and that left him in a similar state to the character of Dr. Cyclops in the film. He still managed to pull off one final bit of successful directing in his career. He joined with Cooper one last time for RKO to make Mighty Joe Young, reteaming with Ray Harryhausen to have another hit film about a giant ape. Cooper, he'd keep on going, keep on keeping on, doing what he did best. Um, I think it's a French phrase, uh, eating leaves and shitting money. He would pair up with John Ford and John Wayne in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and would go on to make a mint, producing blockbuster war pictures and westerns. You know, films like 1948's She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, 1950's Rio Grande, 1952's The Quiet Man, and 1956's The Searchers. As a film, Dr. Cyclops would go on to have a rather strange sort of half-life and rediscovery, just by nature of being associated with the bizarre end of its main actor, Albert Decker, and new ink would get spilled about it as people would dig into the actor's own life and find it. Post Cyclops, Decker would go on to have a solid career in both Broadway and Hollywood, but he did take a slight odd detour into politics in the mid-1940s. With an opening available in the California State Assembly, Decker ran for the 57th District and ended up winning a seat in 1944 in a landslide victory, serving for a two-year term where he was a diehard Democrat who took the actions of then-Senator Joseph McCarthy to task for his hunting of communist sympathizers. Decker's own stance would get him blacklisted from films after he left office for a few years. But since he was an actor who went back and forth between stage and screen, this really didn't have that sort of detrimental effects on his career as it did others, who, well, at least by the mid-50s, it sort of wouldn't matter. Now, during his time in office, Decker advocated for supporting single mothers, was an advocate for child welfare, and even though he was... Very well-liked, he opted not to run for a second term, wanting to go back to acting after he had his stint in office. He was in the first iteration of Ernest Hemingway's The Killers in 1946, opposite of Ava Gardner, Edmund O'Brien, and Burt Lancaster. You may remember we covered the 60s remake quite early on in the history of this show, and he played the role of the operator Colfax who is double-crossing and murdering all of those who used to work for him. It's the same part that Ronald Reagan plays in the film's remake. He would then go on to walk the boards as Willie Lohman in 1949's Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. He had a solid run in both westerns and in noir films, such as 1949's Search for Danger, 1950's Destination Murder, and the Furies. But in 1955, he had a huge year appearing in East of Eden with James Dean, and he followed that up with Kiss Me Deadly with Ralph Meeker. He did experience personal tragedy, though. In 1957, his 16-year-old son John accidentally killed himself. He got shot while cleaning a rifle in the family home. Decker was cast in Suddenly Last Summer with Catherine Hepburn and Montgomery Clift, and that was another box office hit, and he kept having steady work after that in television westerns and appearing on action shows. He had a stint playing the Duke of Norfolk and Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, and it was there that he met a young fashion model, a lady named Geraldine Saunders a woman who he would start a passionate affair with, and whom he would eventually divorce his wife of 35 years for in 1964. Saunders, as a name, might be familiar to many of you. You see, she took her time working a day job as a cruise director, and she used the experiences from being a director to pen the story which would end up giving her a created-by credit on a little-known show called Love Boat which would run for almost a decade starting in the late 70s. With this change in his own personal relationship, Deckard's own personal life got stranger and darker. Decker's surviving son Benjamin would later recount that it was during the mid to late 60s that Decker became one of the many famous people to fall under the care of one Dr. Max Jacobson, also known at the time as Dr. Feelgood, a man who had famously treated the likes of John F. Kennedy, Humphrey Bogart, Judy Garland, Truman Capote, Marlene Dietrich, Eddie Fisher, Liza Minnelli, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, David O. Selznick, Billy Wilder, Mickey Mantle, and honestly, the list just keeps going. There's a host of others that are too long to read here. Jacobson's spiel was to administer what he called vitamin shots to help his patients, well, feel good, just to get through, put a little pep in their step, You may remember this was alluded to on an episode of Mad Men from, I believe, Season 5, where The Office, they all get vitamin shots so they could stay at the top of their game to help sell advertising for a car manufacturer. Here's the problem. It's just a cocktail of uppers, methamphetamine and the likes, and it didn't really help treat anyone long term. And in Decker's case, it was sort of the start of what many consider to be his downfall. For his last role, Deckard was cast as the tough railroad detective Pat Harrigan, who himself hires a group of killers and cutthroats to chase down the gang in Sam Peckinpah's immortal classic, The Wild Bunch. Future episode for sure. And it was there on the set that two things were noted. Deckard, with his long and interesting career in both Hollywood and on Broadway, he was a man who had endless great stories, and the cast all loved to gather around and hear Decker hold court while they were on location shooting in Mexico. Also, from multiple sources, he was described as being completely out of his gourd on that set. In the documentary Passion and Poetry, The Ballad of Sam Peckinpah, actor R.G. Armstrong, who was not in the film The Wild Bunch, but who did come to visit his friend, Peckinpah, on set, noted that Decker was holding court, hanging around with a 13-year-old girl that he would refer to as his wife, and he was telling all of those in attendance that he was secretly a medical doctor, and after filming this movie was over, he was going to go abroad and help treat natives in Africa. Crazy, huh? Decker returned back to Hollywood after shooting wrapped on the Wild Bunch, coming home to his humble apartment in late April of 1968. He was in the process of finalizing what would be the purchase of a home for both Saunders and himself, and this would only be his place of residence for a short amount of time as was evidenced by the fact that he had some $70,000 in cash that he had drawn out to close on their new domicile in the next few days. After the planned purchase, Saunders and Decker were planning on marrying and starting a new chapter in both of their lives. The couple had taken themselves to go out on a date, seeing in a play, seeing in a play, The couple had taken in a play together on a dinner date and then had returned back to Decker's place, bidding each other a good night, while Decker promised to call Saunders the following day to help finalize their plans. It would be the last time that anyone saw the actor alive. Decker never called. The following days, both Saunders and several friends stopped by Decker's apartment and left notes for him on his door, asking him to contact them when he got back. But no contact came. Finally, on Sunday, May 5, 1968, after contacting the management of Decker's apartment complex, Saunders was able to get the door opened and get into Decker's home, finding the body of the actor inside. Now. I know a majority of you aren't squeamish here, based on a lot of the horrible things we've covered that happens in the plots of the films. But this isn't a true crime podcast, and this isn't a fictional event. So if you don't like hearing about unpleasant things, please feel free to scoot ahead a spell. Albert Decker was found dead, kneeling naked in his apartment's bathtub. The 62-year-old had a noose stretched from the shower head to his neck, and in his mouth was a rubber ball gag with a bit of wire running through it. Metal chains were attached to said bit and then further wrapped around his head. Several leather belts were girded around both his neck, chest, and were then intertwined with lengths of rope that wound through the belts and ended up at his feet, where his ankles were bound together. His hands were secured with metal handcuffs, and dangling from each arm was a hypodermic needle. His body was adorned with writing, legibly applied in red lipstick to his chest, stomach, and buttocks, featuring words like whip, slave, cocksucker. And his body also contained some strange artwork as well. Oh, there were also two other needle puncture wounds found on his right butt cheek. And making things all the more bizarre... The bathroom door had been locked with a chain from the inside, and there were no exits in that room, no windows to be found. So could he have done this? The police report would first list Decker's death as just a suicide. Clearly, he had passed on from suffocation derived from constriction around the neck by way of ligature. But the coroner would end up disputing that initial finding, and would write the death up as accidental, which quickly moved those who knew any of the details, and suddenly turned this incident as something that was written off. You know, some sort of weird Hollywood autoerotic sex thing, and it sort of got swept under the rug. Saunders had argued that Decker's large amount of cash as well as his home camera and audio equipment were all missing, and she took this as a robbery that had turned into a murder that someone ended up staging to look like a suicide. But the authorities were very dismissive. They noted, well, we found a bunch of other paraphernalia at the scene. In Decker's bedroom, there was bondage gear, there were sex toys, there was S&M erotica, Saunders agreed with all of it. She said, yeah, those were ours, we used them. But I haven't seen him in the last few days, and this wasn't like Albert. So again, it was all written off as accidental. Now, if you're to believe the salacious side of things, and you can take the view that many have here, such as filmmaker-turned-half-truth gossip writer Kenneth Anger did, you can side with the authorities that this was the result of autoerotic asphyxiation. In his famed compendium of historical gossip, Hollywood Babylon, Anger calls Decker Mr. Kink of all time, and he throws in a number of inaccurate details about the actor's death, describing Deckard being garbed in lingerie when he was found, displaying a final message for all the world to see, noting that, with a sense of delicious schadenfreude, he bound himself and managed to hang himself, even as his favorite handcuffs locked on his wrists for all time. This time he played the game alone, in his Hollywood bathroom. Now, for those of you who are a little more logical, how does a man, even a man who is into such things, legibly write all over his body in lipstick in this fashion? I mean, seriously, across your butt cheeks? And how does one bind themselves in a way, all while having needles stay inserted into your arms? And for that matter, how do you tie your hands and your feet behind yourself and then hang yourself? The hanging would have to come in last in that scenario, right? Because you couldn't do one if you were busy doing the other. And honestly, what about all of that missing cash and missing equipment? As Saunders herself would say over the years, Decker had to have been murdered. There had to have been another person involved, someone he knew, someone who he trusted, and someone he would have let in who would have known that Albert had that kind of money in the apartment. Saunders had maintained that he was murdered until her own death in 2019 at the age of 95. Decker's own surviving son, Benjamin, has a very different take on his father's demise, viewing it all as a horrific and tragic accident that had to have occurred between two consenting adults, not an act of foul play. Again, this isn't a true crime podcast. I don't have all the research to come back and say, well, I looked into the police reports, or throw something out like, years later, I read an interview that stated there was a one-armed man. But... There is a real air of cover-up here, and especially when it comes to Decker's death. True, the studio system was gone at the time. You didn't have guys who were paid fixers, you know, like your Eddie Mannix types, who would come out, quietly grease palms, get the cops to hush up the details, and gloss over the incident. No, in this case, it feels that Decker, even with some of his known, let's call them eccentricities, was written off just a little too quickly. He's just another sex weirdo, never mind all the missing money and the bevy of friends and a fiancé who insist he wasn't depressed at the time, they were all expecting to see him the next day, and there were plans in place. Decker's death remains a dark little slice of Hollywood history that only seems to get stranger as the years roll on, and it still causes folks to pause and wonder, did Albert Decker truly kill himself? perhaps we'll never know. Decker's work lives on, though. New generations are discovering him and this film, finding it being streamed online, or at least more recently, having it showcased on MeTV's marvelous horror show Svengoolie with the estimable Rick Coase, exposing a bit of sci-fi fun and goofiness to all of the masses, which keeps people talking about Decker and then perhaps going out and finding some of his other amazing performances. Look. Uh, for my part. I can't tell you this is an amazing movie, not by a long shot, but it's quite entertaining. The pacing barrels along like a freight train. It's only 77 minutes long. The special effects, which, yeah, they're dated, but they still hold up nicely with the use of the perspective shots and the reverse projection. Just as good as anything you would see from similar creature features that would come along in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. All in all, I think For those of you who are looking for some sort of frothy confection that won't make you think too hard and will garner some unintentional laughs, watching a great actor work in the process, you could do far worse than Dr. Cyclops. The version of Dr. Cyclops screened here at the LSCE was part of the 2011 DVD box set, The Classic Sci Fi Ultimate Collection Volume 2, and that is indeed something we can get completely behind. Not gonna lie, the LSCE Vault has both volumes, but Volume 2, which could be yours for the steep price of $13.59 on Amazon.com, that one comes with Dr. Cyclops. Cult of the Cobra, The Land Unknown, which is a particularly great rubber dinosaur film, The Deadly Mantis, and of course, The Leech Woman. And that's quite a bit of bang that you get for your buck there. You can also buy just a regular old version of the movie that comes by itself, and that's $13.99, put on a single DVDR with no features from the Universal Vault series, but that would beg the question why? But Hey, let's say you're a real hardcore fan and you want to have the finest version available to you. Well, those amazing folks over at Kino Lorber have put out a very special edition of Dr. Cyclops on Blu-ray in the spring of 2020. And that comes with some magnificent features, which includes a new 4K Master transfer, audio commentary by film historian Richard Harland-Smith, a trailers-from-hell featurette with Jesus Trevino, plus you get the theatrical trailers, and all of that can be yours, again, on Amazon for the very reasonable price of $17.99. Well worth it if you ask me. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to purchase your items. We just think in this day and age, it's still ever so important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to the content that we all know and love keep releasing it to us for our viewing pleasure. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you want? More of what you know and love? Besides, this is a really fun and campy romp through the jungle. You know, mad scientists chasing a bunch of shrunken people. It shouldn't be missed. So what are you waiting for? Get out there. Get yourself a copy of Dr. Cyclops today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or, hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, if you do, I'll read it right here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please, swing by. Check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm still very proud to announce we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser, that's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there and give us a follow and review if you could please, and hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to just give us a boost in the rankings. You see, the more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and it makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do! If you have any questions for us, comments, concerns, complaints, movies you want to cover, things you thought I got wrong, we want to hear from you. Please send us an email or an audio clip by way of Linden Street Cinema Experience at gmail.com. You love social media? Well, hey, we use it here. Follow us on Twitter, at L-S-C-E-P, or you can find us on Instagram, at L-S-C-E underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you want to contribute a segment to the sidecar, feel free, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please, everybody, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, Please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.
2: And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.